welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. I've got another cracking episode for you today. We're hearing directly from another e-commerce brand about how they've solved some key frustrations that a lot of businesses out there have. Tech is obviously incredibly important these days. In fact, a lot of brands out there now say that they are a tech company that happens to sell X. Unfortunately, when a lot of people think tech, they think digital marketing channels or adding new apps to their website, you know, the, the kind of sexy stuff. But it's the work you do in the background to support your operations that will make life immensely easier for you. My guest today is James Ewens, the head of e-commerce at Furniture Box. We had a great chat about how you can use your tech stack to make expanding into new marketing channels and new markets significantly easier. Let's get James on now and you can hear all about it. Hi, James. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just quickly introducing yourself? Give us a, a bit of your background and what you're up to uh, these days. Sure. Thanks for having me, Anna Bourne. Uh, yeah, so I'm James. I'm head of e-commerce at Furniture Box. My background has been in tech solutions to power brands' digital growth. And at my role at Furniture Box, I've kind of helped lead the the sort of digital transformation, if you like, of Furniture Box. Obviously, we're one of the lucky businesses through COVID, massive growth in the COVID years. And my task has been to try and transform that growth into to something that's measurable and repeatable. So yeah, that's me. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. How are you how are you seeing things this year in comparison? Yeah, this this has been a bit a bit tougher. I think I think everybody's feeling that a little bit online at the moment. Furniture especially is is down more than other sectors. So really for us this year is not necessarily about huge growth, but about maintaining. And I figure if we can maintain, then we'll be ahead of the curve anyway. But yeah, definitely the 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 change in consumer mindset this year has been uh, has been tough for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's what I'm hearing hearing quite a lot. Every loads of businesses had great years, you know, the, the last couple of years. Things have slowed down a bit this year, but those those companies that are kind of, I suppose, know what they're doing are just happy to, you know, if they, if they can hold stable this year, then they're still ahead of where they were or where, where they would have been if we hadn't had the pandemic and we just had that the normal growth over those two years. So, exactly so. Yeah. Cool. So what do, what do you see the biggest opportunity for growth at the moment? I think the biggest opportunity for growth for for D2C brands is selling on more places. I think I think there's a limit to what you can achieve with brand-based advertising for your own channels. I think the growth is selling on additional channels. So looking at diversifying where you sell, specifically thinking of additional marketplaces, additional places where you can get your brand noticed. I think that's really the biggest opportunity. I think that's an area that a lot of brands a lot of brands will focus on their own website and their own D2C activities, but don't consider that there are other channels that exist that your product could be on that would then open up your brand to a whole range of customers that you would otherwise not have got. So for me, I think that's the biggest opportunity. Yeah, and is that something you guys do a lot of? Yeah, absolutely. We we try and sell on as many different channels as possible. So you'll find our stuff on what are we up to now? Like 13 different channels. We're, we're really trying to get our brand in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And, and the way that we think is the best way of doing that is just to get it on more places. Yeah, it makes sense, really. I mean, we had uh, Ryan Rouse on here uh, probably a fair few episodes ago now. And yeah, his whole his whole thing was talking about whether it's, you know, you, you go and stick D to C or whether you go omni-channel and, and try and sell in different places. And it kind of makes sense to do that because, you know, someone like me, for example, and this is something I, I do kind of want to change, but I'm I'm an Amazon Prime customer. Right? When I when I look to buy something, 
there's a huge number of products where by default, I would just go to Amazon to do my search. There are other products where I might, you know, if I'm thinking, I don't know if this would be on Amazon, I will do a Google search and then just see what I get to. Or if I want, to be honest, a better quality, better quality, I would normally do a Google search and, and go to some brand websites. But yeah, otherwise, the, the search starts quite often with, with Amazon. It really does. And that's a, that's a change that I think DTC brands are struggling with. I think you said you want to change that habit, but you're not alone in that habit at all. I think there are a lot of people now that start their journey on Amazon first and then Google. And potentially, really good point that you touched on, potentially there is a perception now that you'll start your search on Amazon, you'll find something cheap on Amazon, maybe the quality is not there, then you'll go to a brand's website and read into the brand. But chances are, you'll probably still go back to Amazon and buy it. So uh, there's that evolution of the the journey that a shopper goes on now, where it's not just a Google search of uh, phase one of your project. It's actually probably Amazon, then Google, then back to Amazon, then back yeah. to Google. So, yeah. Well, Amazon's kind of, it, it's a, it gives a better alternative experience to doing that Google search. You know, if I can go to Amazon and see all the available products in one page, just you know, on one website, that's better for me than having to open up 10 different websites and go browse each of their category pages or you know, have to find the product on each of these websites individually. And then of course, you've got the benefit of potentially Amazon Prime. You know, I, I do check that box in the filters to, to try and get Amazon, but also I know that I'm, I'm safe buying from Amazon. If I have a problem, either Amazon will sort it or quite often the retailer will, the merchant. And it's just, it's that convenience, isn't it? Yeah, very much is, yeah. Uh, and then I suppose there's loads of other places, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I buy a little bit off, off kind of Facebook uh, marketplace, Gumtree, but those tend to be secondhand things. Yeah. So what, what other what other marketplaces? You said, do you say 39? 13, 13. I'm oh, sorry, 13. If it was 39, we'd be, uh, we'd be doing quite well, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, it's things like, I mean, obviously the, a lot of that is is furniture-based. So a lot of these marketplaces are only going to be relevant for, for furniture. But okay. the concept of what we've achieved is possible in other in other sectors too. So for, for us, obviously Amazon, eBay, Mano Mano, OnBuy, the main UK marketplaces. But then thinking of of like furniture and homeware specific people like the range Danelle, robert dyer thinking of, of specific areas where your brand will do well and like i said that's that's repeatable across other brands if you're a, a beauty retailer or a fashion retailer that logic still works it will just be different partners that you're looking at but again some people might start their search journey on Dunham, or they might start their search journey on the range because they have a relationship with the range they trust the brand is and i think that you again really good point on amazon People trust Amazon. And if you have that element of trust with, say, the range or Robert Dias, then you might find our product on the range of Robert Dias, go look it up afterwards. You'll probably still buy it from the range of Robert Dias. But if we weren't listed on those channels to begin with, you'd never find us. And that's yeah, that's I think is the real, the real important part of it. And then I suppose the second part of that, as you've just again, brilliant, brilliant point, the filtration method on Amazon of being able to find the product or find the products that you're interested in. Amazon have really got that that pretty well nailed, especially with things like the Prime Box. So 
the the next biggest opportunity is not just listing on those channels, but it's making sure that the listing quality on those channels is there so that people can actually find your product and obviously getting involved with with things like Amazon Prime, if it's a possibility, that's a massive that's a massive tick in the box for, for a customer being able to find your product, right? So optimizing the listings and expanding the listings that you have available on different channels is but ultimately I think that's where the that's where the opportunity is. On on certain channels, there's a, I think there's a bit of reputation by association as well. I'm not too sure about Amazon, to be honest. As I mentioned, sometimes there's a bit of question of quality. You know, it's it seems like anyone can list on Amazon. So, you know, you know, some of these products are are quite cheap because they're just being sourced, you know, from you know from China or wherever. And and you do see a lot of the same products popping up just with some different details, different different merchant. But on places like the range, there's kind of that well. If the range have decided to stock them, to stock these products, and I trust the range, then I, I can probably trust this brand and these products. Yeah, I think, again, really good point. The the quality investment in some of the other third party channels is exactly like you said. If the range are willing to sell our products, there is an understanding that we sell it at a quality level and a quality expectation that matches the range. So if you're a loyal customer to the range, you will probably trust the fact that the range have picked their retailers correctly, and and I think that's a as you like it's a, it's a proof positive point, right? It's like a okay, yeah. cool, I trust these guys, and, and I think that really helps. Again, the more people you can do that in front of, the obviously sounds really dumb. But the more people you can get your product in front of, the more people are going to buy it. So yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, going back to the the point at the start, if you're only focused on your own D 2 C website, then you're immediately limiting yourself to the people that you can attract to that website. Yeah. Um, exactly. And you having to do all that marketing yourself. You've got to you've got to work on your SEO, obviously spend money on PPC and Facebook. And actually I've just been reminded of, of an episode we did quite a while back about dominating page one of Google. And the idea there was not necessarily it wasn't really SEO. It was let's say I search for a product because I want to, uh, you know, a transactional search. I want to buy this product. It's quite likely something like Amazon's going to pop up on page one, right? Probably, probably at the top. So his idea there was, how do you make sure you're on that page one? That that's an Amazon listing, right? And this is, you do the same with other brands, right? If you if you're competing with the likes of the range, Dunelm, you know, dozens of other websites, some some pretty big businesses. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to get to to beat them on SEO. So, why not just be on that page? Exactly. Why not? But but still, I still think this. It still makes sense to focus on your own web platform too. Yeah, but in the meantime, as you said, while you're catching up that SEO gap that you'll have to a, a large brand, why not just be on that page, get eyeballs on your product, and then reinvest that growth into being able to to fight for SEO space. And that's that's really the, the strategy that we have. It's it's ultimately it'll funnel back into our DTC channel and our own website. But if we can if we can power that growth by getting sales on on brands that have already got the SEO advantage, then it, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Interestingly, I I did a I've just signed a new started working with a new jewelry client and I did a, a Google search for them because I, I was on my phone. I hadn't been to their website on my phone, I think. And one of the adverts was a, another business. I was bidding on their brand name, but when I clicked through, it was actually a, a, it was like a landing page for that brand. 
And it turns out that, that that company did use to stock their products. So I don't know whether it's an oversight and they're, they're still accidentally bidding on the brand name or whether they're trying to do a bit of a, a traffic steal and they're continuing to bid on that brand name. But then they're saying, oh, a dis- bit of a description of the brand. But then it says, oh, we currently don't stock this brand. Please check out the other collections. So there's a bit of a, it's like the reverse of listing yeah. on that website. It's that website saying, well, if you're not listing on us, we're still going to target you. We're still going to try and benefit from people searching for your brand. Yeah, and I'm sure that does happen across multiple verticals too. And it is a bit cheeky, but as you said, it, it works both ways, I guess. That is, that's, I guess that's some of the risk that you have to inherit with this as a strategy. But, you know, as you said, if you've got somebody like yourself that's, that's competent at uh, doing the occasional Google search to see what brand bidding is occurring, you'll you'll find it pretty quickly as you did. So yeah, it's just about being on top of it and and trying to mitigate that risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's what sort of challenges are you guys facing at the moment, like mar- marketing specific? Yeah, I mean marketing specific. I think this will be the same, and this will ring true for for everyone. But I think the increased PPC competition at the moment is is pretty crazy. I don't think we've ever been in a scenario where we've seen a bidding war like we've got now. And I think we're seeing as more and more brands move into the e-commerce space, obviously we're, we're lucky that we're ahead of the curve because we were in the e-commerce space before COVID. But I think the, the bigger brands that have now potentially moved some of their budgets away from in-store activities and moved away from their brick and mortar to e-commerce that has massively increased the the ppc spend and and you know your 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 cost per click is is the highest it's been for for as long as i can remember it really is a a, a proper bidding war now so i think that's that's been the main challenge and i think the secondary challenge off the back of that is obviously with the introduction of of ios 14 and now ios 15 and whatever google does with chrome the, the changes in being able to track acquisition correctly makes that whole journey a lot harder. It makes it a lot it makes it a lot more tricky to be able to see accurate campaign data. And I think that that alongside the increase in PPC cost has kind of led us to to kind of be a bit more vague in in how we spend. And now we just have to accept that if we spend X, we will see a return of Y and that's it. We're not really doing anything more smart with it because the data's missing. And ultimately, we, you know, you're spending more on PPC anyway. So your return is going to be less because you're spending more, right? So yeah, I think there's the, the the two biggest challenges. And I think that it, you know, if we can if we can work towards a, a solution for for data gathering or acquisition, then I think it would make everything easier for everyone. But unfortunately, that's uh, those days of accurate attribution are probably behind us now. Yeah, it's definitely something that pops up pretty much every conversation at the moment. People just struggling with that that attribution. I've heard a lot of people talk about post-purchase surveys and asking people where they heard about the brand or, or where they came from today. And it's it's not something I'm a fan of. I I just I can't ever see that really being reliable data either. Because you know, if if the question is where did I come from today, then it's not really that helpful because I'll just say, well, yeah, I clicked through a PPC advert or Google or or whatever. And if the question is, where did you first hear about us? Then it's me going, I don't know, that was six months ago. 
I probably did a Google search and came across you. And, and, and then it also comes down to the fact that what can you do with that data? Yeah. Right. Doesn't it's, it's, it's not actionable in any way. Uh, yeah. It's, it's literally just gathering data for the sake of gathering data. We've, we've tried this. So we tried a post-purchase survey in our check on our website. And I think the other problem with it is that if 10, if you show that to a thousand people and 10 people respond to it, those 10 people all could have come from a Google search. So that would make your data look like your Google search history is the most important. Yeah. But of course, that doesn't take into account the other 990 customers that have visited your website, right? So I, yeah, I think you're entirely right. I don't think that data is reliable enough to do anything with. And you may as well just rely on 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 just your percentage of ad spend versus revenue, right? Because that will give yeah. you the same information. Yeah. Also, let me say, if, if if you get loads of people saying Google, what what do you do What's with Google that? Mean? Right? Yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> what, what did they search? You know, what... Does, does that mean you just say, well, we need to spend more money on SEO, but which, you know, what do you need to target with SEO? What actually works? Yeah. It's just, it's not actionable data. Yeah. It, uh, at best, it gives you a hint as to which channels might be driving the most sales, but also, you know, because it it's, it's essentially just last click attribution as well, because people are telling you where they came from today, not where they did that original search. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was, I was gonna comment and say, then you get into the discussion of first click versus last click because, as you said, that first click might have been six months ago where they found you via word of mouth. The friend may have introduced you to the brand. Then your last click could be a Google search brand term leads you to the website, but actually you might have searched on the brand and then clicked a PPC click. So I, yeah, the data's not; it doesn't tell you enough to to do anything with. I honestly, I think the only way that you'll get back to that understanding, and, I, and I've I've said this in a few conversations previously, but the only way you can prove the the value of a campaign, turn the campaign off and see what your revenue does, and and that will tell you yeah. in a very quick period of time. Yes, you'll drop revenue doing it, but if you turn off Facebook ads or you turn up some turn off some of your top of funnel, you know PPC campaigns you'll see a revenue drop real quick and that will give you an indication that, okay, I can attribute that, but I can say that if I turn it off, we're going to lose X percentage. And so that is justification enough for running these campaigns. Yeah. Um, and I understand that's a, that's a real difficult conversation to have with, you know, finders and stakeholders, but you know, that's the only way you'll prove it. They turn off a campaign and see what happens. And, and that's, there's your proof. Yeah. Yeah, cool. You mentioned right at the start, you do, do a lot with tech and kind of leveraging new tech. So, can you just tell us a bit about, bit more about that? How do you, yeah, how do you go about using tech to expand new channels, make them more efficient? Yeah, I sort of advertise furniture box quite frequently. I say we're a tech company that just happens to sell furniture, and I think that's 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 pretty pretty key difference for. Especially in the furniture world, furniture brands can be quite old school. You know, tech is a is a is a an avenue that's quite far down the list. But for us, tech is right at the top. Tech is everything to us. So whether that be Bright Pearl, our, our central order management system, whether that be our warehouse management system, our PIM, product information management, all of what we do is based around using tech to further improve the speed at which we can list or the efficiency with which we can sell. And if you look at how we've moved on to all these different channels, two years ago, we listed on five channels. And like I say, now we're at 13. Those 
that growth into those 13 channels has entirely been driven by our tech stack allowing that to occur. So there's lots of elements to that. Obviously, I say PIM is, is the most important, but the other elements that flow around that are having good integration partners that can build integrations between these platforms and your existing systems. And if you can build an integration with a new channel quickly and you can test it and roll it out without issue, then your ability to sell on that channel increases exponentially. And that's what we've done. I think personally, we've done very well. We've worked with some really good partners and we can roll out a channel now in in days instead of weeks or even months in some other cases. We don't have to justify the tax spend. We just do it. And yeah, like I said, top of the tree is PIM. PIM is everything. You talk, just talk to us a little bit about PIM. Give us a bit of a layman's explanation and then also... Why? You know, why is it important? How does it? How does it benefit the business? How does it? How does it help you speed up these these new launches? Yeah, absolutely. So, product information management PIM, it's a tool that allows you to store all of your product data and all of your digital assets in one place. Now, that sounds really simple. If you have a growing product library, being able to get that data in a consistent, repeatable format over and over again is everything. Your data being clean, your data being complete, and that data being able to scale out to however many channels you want without any additional work is everything. And that's why it's so important. You're not using Excel sheets, you're not using random spreadsheets or random shared folders that have your images in. All of your images, all of your instructions, all of your product data, everything is in one place. And because it's all in one place, you can then roll it out to different channels really quickly. So we use a tool, I'll give them a quick shout out if that's okay, but yeah. um, we use a tool called PIM and I'll, I'll, I'll stand on my hill for Pimbly with my flag and say that's the one part of my tech stack I'll never change. That's how important it is. All of our channel journeys, all of our product journeys, they all start in PIM. And without Pimbly, we wouldn't be able to scale to the channels that we currently sell on. It just wouldn't be possible. We'd end up being in a, I say, an old school scenario, loads of different Excel sheets, loads of random shared folders with your images in. By putting it all in one place, we make it easy and repeatable to get that data out of Pimbley and into the channels that we want to sell on. And we have one source of truth. And I think that's, like I said, that's that's everything. That's the most important element of our tech stack. Yeah. And I suppose, do you, do you have, you know, you, you obviously got rid of all the, the Excel sheets and things, but do you have a kind of like template that you use for the, the product information, the descriptions, or is it all kind of laid out in Pimbley and you just got to fill in the form? each time yeah very much like that yeah so it's all laid out in Pimbley and we just fill out the form each time we want to add new products or update new products it's it's really that simple the benefit of a PIM is also that instead of having a set template for how your data is displayed we can change that template on the fly so if for example on by want their product data to be imported in a certain format we can build that in Pimbley export from Pimbley, send it straight to the channel. We're not constrained by the, the format that our data is in. We can change that data to match the channel in seconds, which is, again, another another big benefit of a PIM. Without a PIM, you'd be copying and pasting data from your spreadsheets to their template. Like It would just it would be very yeah, difficult you, to manage. You're, you'd be manually creating a product listing for every single product on every single channel that you want to open on. Whereas exactly. with Pimbley, you're just pushing the pushing your product catalogue. Yep, exactly, Seth. 
Cool. Makes sense. Yeah, definitely see the benefit of that. I, I worked with a client last year and they were a small business, to be fair, a small, very, very early, early business that was scaling quickly and they didn't have some of these processes and things in place. So, you know, there, there was no, there was no process behind creating a new product. It was literally just someone would go in and, and add some details. So when we did, wanted to do things like bundles and we wanted to say, well, we need, it's going to be this product, this product, and this product. There was no process for putting that together properly. It was literally just going into Shopify and someone just quickly filling it out so that we could we could get it live. And that causes some issues with you know SKU numbers. There's a lack of consistency around naming, naming conventions and things. So I think, and then at the end of the day, no one has a clue what, what some of these products and, and bundles are. You know, particularly when they're used for like one-off campaigns and things, but then they they sit there in that product listing, and yeah, pe- people in the future have no idea, you know, what that was, what it was for. Yeah, that, and that's like another really good point. Like, you're not just talking about being consistent right now; you're also being consistent with your future product development too. And and you know, I've I've spoken about this quite a bit as well. But you know, when we when we started our, our e-commerce team at Furniture Box, Furniture Box had four and a half thousand products. We've now got fourteen and a half thousand. So you know, we've we've four times the the almost four times the product level. And and again, if we didn't have Pimberly, that would be across a billion different spreadsheets with mm. with multiple different ways of inputting that data. As you said, if if one person designs a bundle in a specific format and then another person designs it in a different way marrying the data together is going to be real difficult and we just don't have that problem with Pimberly. We have a set format, we have a set strategy for how we create new products and then how we list those products. And so it doesn't matter whether we're we're updating or creating 10 products or 1,000 products, the process is the same. And that gives us that, as you said, consistency around how we list and, and how we gather that data. So yeah, I, I, I can't stress it enough. For us, the PIM element and what Pimberly has allowed us to do has been that's been our biggest success story. Without it, we couldn't have done what we've done. Yeah. And I suppose it helps with kind of internal resource as well, right? You don't need a massive team managing all these different channels because it's pretty much just plug and play, just plug in Pimberly, fire across the uh, the catalog and, and you're exactly. good to go. Yeah. It makes that, it, the scalability piece, it, you're entirely right. Like we're not scaling with staff now, we're scaling with tech and you know, we can throw... 20 people at our, our product management and product data team, that won't help us scale. Pimbley doesn't require 20 members of staff and does help us scale. So yeah, yeah it's everything. Yeah, awesome. I think last time we spoke, you you talked a little bit about using AR, augmented reality and uh, and QR codes. So yeah, how, how do you use you know, th- th- things like AR, QR codes to, to enhance the customer experience? How do you I guess where where do the ideas come from? Uh, how do you go about implementing them, and and why? What's the what's the goal? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the goal. So the goal for us, like I said, we're we're a tech company that happens to sell furniture, but we want to use tech to improve the customer experience. Whether that's by making it easier for the customer to understand the physical size of a product via AR or whether we want to make it easier for a customer to find data that's relevant to their product, like a QR code, 
we want to try and enhance that customer experience to make it easier for everybody to, to buy from us. The QR codes are probably the easiest one to explain because what we've done with QR codes is we've created QR codes for all of our products. And when you open our products up, your manual that comes with the product, your, your assembly guide and your care guide, the very, very first thing you'll see is a QR code. And we're encouraging you to scan that QR code. That will take you to our Furniture Box Club. And the Furniture Box Club is basically a, a hub of resources around your specific product. So that could be things like how to look after your leather, how to cover your garden furniture, how to look after your garden furniture. It could be the assembly guides. It could be the assembly videos. It could be frequently asked questions. We just want to put all of the data that's relevant to your product in one place and get you to that quickly. And a QR code, in my opinion, is the quickest way of doing that. That will give you straight to a website. There's the data you need. There's a YouTube video. Have at it. Um, and that, that experience when you when you scan it, that is experience is tailored to the product? Tailored to the product, yeah. Specific to that product. So all of our products have a unique QR code and that's yeah, specific to that product. And there's nothing generic, it's all it's all specific to the product you've purchased. Yeah. And that rings true across, say for a dining set, for example, you wouldn't see the the whole dining set on a club page. You would see the specific bit you're interested in. So if you scan the QR code for the dining table, it's going to take you to the assembly guide and the care guide and stuff for that dining table. Same for the chair separately. So it's it's really tailored again customer experience right we don't want somebody to get confused we want you to get to the data that you're or the question that you want answering quickly again ux is everything so that the qr codes are a really cool piece of tech that allow us to do that and i think again i don't think we're necessarily ahead of the curve with that i think other people have been doing that too but it's just a really neat way of getting the customer without having to say you know do a shortened url and and you know type this url into your phone like that's not yeah great is it Whereas a QR code is a much quicker way of just scan it done. And I think I mean, especially now, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I've not seen it much and it's, right. it really surprises me. I, I introduced it with a client and it, and it did really well. And we, they've, they've started to get reviews, which specifically call out the fact that there's yeah. a QR code and all this helpful information. And for them, it's actually still quite generic because they do a lot of custom products. So actually it would literally have to be a unique experience for every single product. But, you know, this, the, the table that I'm at at the moment, the standing desk, right? It's an electric standing desk. So it's a little bit more complex. And actually the, the manual wasn't in, in the box. And I, you know, I couldn't, couldn't find it anywhere. I went onto, onto the Amazon listing. I went to their website. I even just Googled the actual name of the desk manual. Couldn't find it. I had to email them to get it. And obviously, if the QR code's in the manual and the manual's not in the box, then that doesn't help. But but the, the digital version they sent me didn't have that QR code. But they could just... I, I would do it as something separate. I, I would do it as a separate item that goes in. So it's the very first thing people see when they open the box is a QR code which says, scan me. Yeah, we, we did toy around with that as well, of having the separate insert. But we, we sort of felt like if... If the if the manual was missing from the box because somebody had I don't know forgot to put it in in the factory or whatever, it's likely they'd forget to put in that that extra piece yeah. of paper with it. And also from a, it's a really really minor thing, but from a sustainability perspective, we already put the manual in the box. So why use another bit of paper? Yeah, and we did also think about a sticker on the product, but again, it, a high end dining set. If there's a sticker on it. 
imagine if you try and peel off the sticker and the sticker doesn't peel off properly. Like that's a point of yeah of of sort of failover for the user experience. So we we felt like putting it on the manual was the best bet. But I, yeah. yeah, I think the I think that's the point of using QR codes at all. It's such an obvious thing to do. So it is it is kind of crazy that other people don't do it. But I think you're seeing it more with you know with connected TVs and stuff. So when you want to log, when you want to log into Netflix or yeah. Apple TV or whatever, you're starting to see QR codes creep into that journey as well. So I think the more places that use them, the more common they'll become. Well, I mean, WhatsApp um, WhatsApp's used it for. For years, years for yeah, its yeah. desktop version, you know, you just you know, web web whatsapp.com scan the QR code, and you, you don't have to do anything else. Anything. You yeah. literally just scan the QR code, and it goes cool. You logged in. Yeah. Um, it's it's crazy that, especially because what people like WhatsApp have been using it for so long. It's kind of crazy that it hasn't caught on yeah. in more sectors. And but yeah, is, there's just so much opportunity to give so much more information. You know, and a better experience. Like I said, it's that care information that, you know, when someone's putting together the furniture, they're not thinking, how do I care about this? Uh, you know, how do I care for the product? Because that's normally a, I imagine for a lot of people, that's a, I haven't cared for my product and now it's showing some wear and tear. So what do I do now? Whereas yeah. if you're putting that information in front of people on that QR code, at least they're aware that they need to to think about it. But you can also update that page. Right. If I don't know, let's say it's, it's a leather product or something or, or a material product and you decide actually there's a better way to care for it, you can just update that that landing page and, and everyone's got access to it. Exactly. So it it saves us having to do anything updating wise to the packaging or the manual or inserts by having it online. Obviously, then we have the ability to tweak it based on customer feedback or or based on a change in material even. Yeah. A new cleaning product. Like we have that ability. I, I'm surprised, and this is going slightly off topic, but I, I'm surprised we haven't seen more QR codes on out-of-home advertising. So particularly, I'm thinking the tube, the underground. Where, where are you based? In Bristol. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so I, I'm south, south London. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, now, now that the underground is... You know, there's quite a lot of 4G down there and there's Wi-Fi at every station. So every platform. So there's a massive opportunity just to stick a QR, a big QR code on an advert. And then you can tailor, you can change the advert, right? You're not, because I think normally you're, you're, you pay for about a six week or six week rotation with the adverts. So if you want to run, run a campaign for four weeks, but you're stuck with a six-week advert, you just update it because you're updating the content behind the QR code. I, I had seen when I when I visited London for Shop Talk, I had seen that there are some QR codes on the Elizabeth line now. So okay. some of the escalators up and down to the Elizabeth line on the walls, there are QR codes for I think it was for for like a play and you could buy tickets from the QR code. So it takes you to the ticket okay. website to buy tickets. So I think we will start seeing that happening. But again, just it's sort of crazy that it hasn't already happened, right? Like yeah. it seems like such a no-brainer, but yeah. Yeah, cool. And just just quickly, uh, did, you, did you have anything about AR that you want to talk about? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, could, uh, I sort of got carried away with QR codes there, didn't I? But yeah, yeah AR, is, AR is a thing where I think the technology is good enough to to make it worthwhile now so we've been we've been working with a few AR partners probably the past three or four months to really nail the AR journey again 
I think everything that we do has to be at the benefit of customer experience. We don't just want to do something because it's cool tech. We want to do something yeah. that will make the experience better. And I think AR is at a level where that's that's possible now. So we'll, we'll take renders of all of our products and we'll let you, using your phone, and especially if you're iPhone-based, it actually uses the LiDAR scan on the back of your phone to, to work out the size of space available. And it will it will literally put your dining set that you want to buy in that space that you've got available. So you can see in real time, is this going to fit? How does this look? And, and what sort of scale does that have to the rest of the room? So, and also then the ability to walk around it, all the cool stuff you can do with AR. It's, it should be a massive improvement to the user experience, but we hadn't jumped onto the bandwagon early because we didn't believe the tech was good enough. I, I strongly believe that only in the past probably six to nine months as the tech caught up with what the customer would actually want to use it for. Yeah. And and I think that's the step for us is that we were waiting for that stage for, for the AR to actually be usable. And I think it's there. Now. Yeah. I think it's been usable for kind of content and information, but not the practical reasons that people would want to use it, such as this dining set I want to buy is only available online, which means I can't go into a store and see it. So how do I make sure that I don't spend you know, fifteen hundred quid on a on a dining set? It turns out we put it together, it doesn't fit, and I've got to try and send it back, which which that's, isn't always easy. It isn't always easy, exactly. And and again, that's that's the whole purpose of the UX, right? Is that you're making the user experience like it, it serves a purpose. It not it's not just there for showing off to your friends or putting on Instagram. It's there for a practical purpose of, as you said, I can't see this in the flesh in a shop but I can put it in my room and I can see what it looks like in my room and I can walk around it and I can see how much space it takes up. And, and then obviously then yeah. you're not doing the return. You've not then got the the process of sending the product back, which is not good for, for the customer or the retailer. Yeah. You, and obviously sustainability again, like you're not spending time collecting the goods, you know, a set of goods from a customer that you then have to return. You're just, you're kind of removing all of those challenges that exist. You're kind of you're almost bringing some of that in-store experience into somebody's home. And that's yeah. relevant for, for a sofa or a bed or a dining set or a mirror. It doesn't matter. Like you, if you can physically put it in your room, I think the two benefits, number one, the user experience is better. Number two, I think your buying signals are going to be significantly stronger if you can physically see the product in your space. And I think that that's a, as a conversion rate tool, I think that's going to be good for us too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just reminded me, I, I remember speaking to Oak Furniture Land back in probably July 2020. So maybe a bit earlier, actually. I think we were still in that first lockdown. And they told me that they, they'd obviously seen a, a change in buying behavior because they didn't have their stores. What they were seeing was loads of people were coming to the website and buying something quite small. So like a side table or maybe a coffee table or something, they would receive that product, kind of check it out. And then they would come back and spend two and a half grand on a, on a dining set and, and, and a bunch of other things. So because they couldn't have that in-store experience where they could actually look, you know, touch, actually really see the stuff, they were basically buying a sample product, you know, seeing what that was like. And, and that would then confirm whether they want to spend all the money. So AR then kind of removes the need to make that sample purchase. Obviously, you still can't feel the product, but you know everyone knows what oak furniture kind of looks and feels like. So you're you are really just checking for the sizing. 
I mean, a glass table is a glass table. So, you know, you're not going to feel anything yeah. different on a glass table than you are from anybody else. But you're right, getting the sizing correct. And I mean, in a furniture landscape, probably that's a negative that you're taking away that first purchase. But but from the customer perspective, it's a massive positive. So I, I do think that AR opens up a whole opportunity for customer experience that we just haven't had before. And I think we're, yeah, I think we're ready for that now. Is it? And I think as well, with the massive shift to online, I think people are more willing to trust AR than they ever have been. And I think that's another another big step towards that confidence to buy online. Yeah. Well, it helps when, you know, I- IKEA does it, don't they? IKEA's been doing it. So I think it helps when brands like IKEA do it. And basically people are saying, well, I, I trust, I- it's- it- again, it's that reputation yep. by association. I now, I trust AR generally as tech because big brands trust it. So it must work. It must do the job. And therefore, if a smaller brand uses it, I can probably still trust it because AR is now reliable tech. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Just before we finish, is there anyone in the DTC marketing space that you'd want to sit down for lunch with? I I would, I spend a lot of time getting inspiration from some of the bigger furniture boys. And I think for me, I would really love to have a conversation with, with, uh, with a marketing leader or an e-commerce leader in somewhere like Sophology or Made. I think that would be a really interesting conversation. I'd love to, I'd love to start having a conversation about what, what things we do the same and what things we do differently and also get an understanding of what works and what doesn't work from their side too. So I think that would be, that would be the people that I'd want to I'd want to most meet and have a conversation with for sure. Yeah, cool. And yeah, have you got any any marketing tools that you that you'd recommend to listeners? The only real marketing tools that I would that I would I would recommend and use and say that we use regularly and use every day would be would be Clavio. Clavio is kind of our our hub now. Email marketing is a large part of our business, but I think that Clavio from a marketing perspective is is the boy that we use most frequently. And I think, and I'm probably going to upset a lot of people by saying this, but I think like just use Google Analytics, like the data that you might want to look at and might want to see. Like, don't don't sleep on how much data you've probably got in GA that you haven't looked at. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time looking at big data and huge BI tools that allow them to get actionable insight, but actually, a lot of the data that you've got in GA is really good. Yeah. Spend more time looking at GA. Like honestly, that's what we do. We don't have a, a separate analytics platform that runs on our site. We just use GA. And you know, we're we're not a massive brand by any stretch of the imagination, but we're not small either. And we we get by fine with it. So I think that you can learn a lot from your GA data. So don't don't sleep on it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think people overcomplicate things. You get, you know, you get people out there who do go on about these these enterprise level analytics tools. And it does mean that smaller brands or maybe less experienced people are kind of looking at thinking, okay, that's what we need. Once we get to a certain point, we need to go and get that tool because it gets recommended. And actually, yeah, you know, there's a lot of data in 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 GA. You get data from from Shopify and other 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 kind of CMS platforms and things like Clavio. Now, obviously, you've got to understand some of those data sources like you know clavio claims a lot of revenue a lot more revenue than it's probably actually actually generating but as long as you understand that then there's there's plenty of other data you can be looking at to get a feel for things i think 
I think the the first step actually on your data journey is to understand the data that you already have. And as you've rightly said, there are so many different sources of data that you can get your hands on, whether that's from Shopify or GA or your marketing platforms or Google Ads or Facebook Business Manager. Sorry, Meta Business Manager, she got that right. <laughs> yeah. Work out work out what data you've got access to now and try and use that data first instead of trying to overcomplicate it, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Right. This is great stuff. Thanks so much for that. If anyone wants to reach out to you, ask you some questions about what we've been talking about today, what's the best way of doing that? The best way would be my LinkedIn. So just James Jones on LinkedIn. You'll find me easy enough. My name's uh, pretty uncommon, so you should get me pretty easily. If not, reach out and, and we can share email. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me. Having a good tech stack is so important. It helps your business keep organized. Uh, everyone knows what they're doing, how to find processes, templates they need. And most importantly, it allows you to expand into those extra channels far quicker than otherwise. Making sure your product information is correct is obviously essential to selling, but it's even more important if you're on multiple channels, you know, eBay, Amazon, the likes. Making sure your product information is correct is obviously essential to selling, but it's even more important if you're on multiple channels such as eBay and other marketplaces. Having the tech in place to allow you to make a single change and have it go live across everywhere you're selling is invaluable, not just because it saves time, but also it reduces the likelihood of something being missed. Tech can also be used to enhance the customer experience. Uh, QR codes are a great way to do this. You can include a bespoke QR code with every product, uh, providing access to product manuals, maintenance guides, uh, a bunch of other content, and you can always keep it up to date for when the customer needs it. If you'd like to hear more from James, please reach out to him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback, or guest requests, please send them over to will at customersuclick.com or uh, DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Sean Brandt with me. He's the co-founder at Audit, and we're going to be talking about brand-first CRO. But until then, keep those customers clicking. Mm-hmm.